This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. I have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together to study your word, for the freedoms that we have in this nation, and for those who have served in military service, willing to make the ultimate sacrifice to uh, preserve these freedoms. And also, we are thankful for those who are serving today, who are willing to fight and to, if necessary, give their lives that we may continue to have our freedoms. Father, we pray for this nation, for our president, for our leaders in Congress, our military leaders, that they may make wise decisions, that we may have victory over our enemies in the war against terrorism, and if we go to war against Iraq, that that, that too would be a timely decision, a wise decision, that you would give our troops victory, that this would be a quick war, and that we would be, be finished and be able to accomplish our objectives. Father, we pray for us as believers that as we study your word that we would be refreshed by it, that it would, we would learn to focus our attention on eternal matters and not on temporal matters, that we would learn to make decisions today in light of eternity as we prepare to uh, rule and reign with you both in the millennial kingdom and in eternity. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Second John ties together two key problem-solving devices. Now, we have studied problem-solving devices many times in the past, so I just want to briefly review them. We start off with the first problem-solving device, which handles sin in the life of the believer. You have two options whenever you run into adversity, whenever you run into trials or testing, and that is to either handle it yourself through the uh, power of the sin nature, which may not involve sin, but does involve self-dependence, which is in contrast to God's plan. It may involve morality, but that does not have any spiritual value. Or we can rely upon God. Whenever we sin, whenever we handle adversity on our own, ultimately it will involve sin, and it will eventually lead to fragmentation of the soul. The way to recover is to confess our sins. When we confess our sins, we're back in fellowship with God. We recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can begin to use that doctrine that's in our soul as we apply it to produce spiritual maturity. It is not that by simply being in fellowship things automatically happen. We have to utilize our volition to apply the doctrine in our soul, and the Holy Spirit uses that to produce the fruit of the Spirit. When we sin, it is not that the Holy Spirit is no longer operational in our life, but He is no longer operational with respect to our spiritual growth. Now, after we are filled with the Spirit, we confess our sins, we're filled with the Spirit, we walk by means of the Spirit. The first tool to walk by means of the Spirit we call the faith rest drill, where we're taking the promises of God and we mix them with our faith. We apply those promises to the situation in our lives. Following the faith rest drill, we have a grace orientation and then doctrinal orientation. These are all spiritual skills we have to master 
as we advance in the spiritual life. We have to learn to rely upon God's grace, that it is that God's grace has supplied and provided everything for us. Second Peter one three says that, that he has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. Godliness is the word eusebeia, meaning the spiritual life. He has provided everything for us. Now, as we master these basic skills, these basic spiritual skills, we grow and mature, but like most most immature people, we're still basically living our life on a day-to-day basis, and we make a lot of mistakes, and we end up sinning a lot, and we have a lot of uh, wrong ideas sometimes about the spiritual life. But eventually, maturity begins to uh, have its effect and begins to dawn on us that we're not just living in light of today, we're living in light of tomorrow, that there is an eternity that God is preparing us for, and this is the purpose for all of these tests that we go through is to give us opportunities to apply the Word so that the character of Jesus Christ is built in us through God the Holy Spirit to prepare us for certain responsibilities and for our role in the eternal kingdom. And this this growth that takes place at this stage is a, a, where we move through adolescence. The key element here is what I call the personal sense of our eternal destiny. We realize we have this eternal destiny, and we are learning to make decisions today in light of eternity. Following that, we move into spiritual maturity. Once you begin to really learn on a day-to-day basis, as you go to work, as you go through details, problems, adversity on the job, with the family, just in life in general, and you begin to live in light of eternity, then you begin to really master uh, the next level, which is the lo- what I call the love triplex, where you're moving through personal love for God. See, you have to know the word doctrinal orientation. You have to understand God's grace, grace orientation, before you begin to really love God. You can't love someone you don't know. We can't love God if we don't know him. We can only know him if we know his word. So this is what John mixes these things together. In the main commandment of verses 4 through 6, he's emphasizing walking according to his commandments, doctrinal orientation, and that that is love, personal love for God the Father, which uh, is the motivation and the foundation for impersonal love for one another. This is the main commandment, that we love one another in verse 5. But he warns us that as you advance beyond spiritual adolescence into spiritual maturity, it's possible to become distracted and derailed for your spiritual life to go off course, for you to become self-satisfied and self-sufficient and forget God and forget to rely on a day-to-day basis on everything that God has supplied for you. It's even possible that you may become distracted by listening to some pastor who comes along with some false doctrine that in and of itself becomes a distraction. People become intellectually stimulated by all manners of different things. Sometimes they hear somebody, uh, some pastor come along with something they haven't heard before, or maybe they read a book or they uh, get involved sometimes in psychology, a major distraction in the spiritual life, or maybe, as I mentioned in the first hour, for some reason they uh, get involved in mysticism, very popular today. They begin to uh, identify spiritual growth with their feelings, and they become stimulated with all of these new ideas. The next thing you know, they're distracted. And then once you become distracted, you start operating on the sin nature, even though you may still be showing up at church, even though you still may be reading your Bible. And for all outward purposes, everything may seem to be okay, but it isn't on the inside. Distraction has occurred through assimilating false doctrine, and there's a tremendous warning against this in Second John. And I want you to skip down. We've been in verse 8, and we're still in verse 8. But I want to show you the seriousness that John places upon holding to correct doctrine, especially correct doctrine in relationship to the person of Christ. In verse 10, he says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him, for him who for he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. 
Doctrine is important not simply because doctrine is the answer to everything in life, and the only way to really make it through life is a success is to learn and apply doctrine on a consistent basis, but that if you have wrong doctrine, you start assimilating wrong ideas at the level of basics, then what is going to happen is it will break your fellowship with God. You're going to end up operating on the sin nature, and it ultimately will destroy your spiritual life. So John says don't have anything to do with anyone who is off on their basic doctrine because they may have some influence on you eventually. It's the tantamount to the principle that Paul articulates in First. Corinthians chapter 15, that bad company corrupts good morals. Don't hang out with people who have bad theology. It may influence you, and it's not worth the risk. When we become distracted by sin in our life, when we become distracted by the details of life so that doctrine is no longer a priority, when we get become distracted by some false doctrine, then what happens is the spiritual momentum that we have developed, the spiritual growth that we have achieved, the spiritual maturity that has developed is put in jeopardy. And it can be reversed and we can lose it. So John warns in verse 8, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, John is not talking about salvation here. Salvation is a free gift, Ephesians 2, 8 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a free gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You do not work for a gift. A gift is given freely. There's no strings attached. If somebody gives you a gift and there are strings attached, it's not a gift. You ever try to explain that to a telemarketer? We have a free gift for you. All you have to do is, wait a minute, it's not a free gift. They don't understand that. A free gift is something that is given with no strings attached. It's yours just for the taking. You don't have to do anything to maintain it. You don't have, I mean, to keep it. You don't have to do anything to, um, to get it. There's no conditions for anything else. It's yours. Salvation is a free gift. However, here we're talking about something you work for. You don't work for a gift. Here we're talking about a reward. A reward is something you earn. You do something for a reward. So this is not talking about salvation. This is talking about spiritual growth after salvation. We are rewarded for our spiritual growth, the spiritual advance being the fact that we were willing to forego many things in life in order to make doctrine the highest priority in order to learn the Word and apply the Word. And we were willing to give up certain things. There are many things in life that we could be doing on a Sunday morning, especially after the wonderful winter that we've had this year and the beautiful weather outside. It's going to, uh, for us, it's going to be almost hot today. It might even, might even hit 55. We won't know what to do with ourselves. After the snow melted, I saw the daffodils trying to push their way through the frozen soil this last week. So, of course, it's going to be 65 for me tomorrow because I'm going to Southern California. But I don't want to make you, I don't want to make you jealous. So now we're going to have to confess our sins all over again and get back in fellowship, I can tell. But after this winter, on a day like this, we could be just about anywhere. I think some people are. (laughs) This is a priority. Are we willing to set aside many of the wonderful things we can do in life, many of the pleasures that there are in life, many hobbies that we can develop in life that uh, take people away on a Sunday morning? And that is part of the spiritual life, learning to recognize that even though we may have temporal pleasure for a while, what really matters is that which has eternal significance and has eternal consequences, especially for our character. Character matters. And God is in the process of producing in us the character of Jesus Christ. It is only by understanding the character of Jesus Christ, especially in relationship to grace, to humility, to being a servant, and all of that is tied up in the concept of impersonal love, as it is explained in the Scriptures, and all of that is necessary in order to be a good leader and to be able to responsibly carry out 
whatever roles that we have in eternity. If we fail in the development of our spiritual life and we are a failure at the judgment seat of Christ, then 1 Corinthians 3 warns that we will lose rewards. We won't lose salvation, but we enter into heaven yet as through fire. It is the judgment seat of Christ and understanding the judgment seat of Christ that is to provide the tremendous motivation for us to press on to spiritual maturity. This morning, if you were here in the first hour, we were beginning our study in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, going back into the Old Testament, and we didn't get as far as the development of the analogy to uh, the manna in the Old Testament But manna is the bread, the miraculous bread that God provided to feed and sustain the Jews in the wilderness. The principle is that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. The manna represents God's spiritual nourishment for us. It was available for the Jews every single day. If you went out and collected it from the sun early in the morning before the sun came out, then you would take it into your tent and it would make it through the day. If you if it stayed out there once the sun came up it would it would melt and it would disappear. And the analogy is to doctrine. The doctrine is available for all, but if you don't take it and assimilate it into your soul, then it doesn't do you any good. But the reason you assimilate it into your soul is so that you can grow and mature and advance, that the character of Christ can be produced in your life because God is preparing us today for what we will be in eternity. So we've been studying in Second John the, um, the judgment seat of Christ, and the importance is to understand that we're living today in light of eternity. Now, what happened in the Old Testament is that as those Jews collected the manna, and every morning there was manna, and the manna that appeared today tasted like the manna that appeared yesterday, and the manna that appeared the day before, and last month. Six months ago, a year ago, it's the same manna. People got bored and they complained. They were no longer grateful for the fact that they had this supernatural food that provided all of their nourishment, sustained them completely. They didn't have to do anything for it, and so they began to treat it lightly. See, that's exactly what happens to believers. In the early stages, when you're first saved, and you're going through situations in life, and many people are going through hard difficulties, perhaps, when they're saved, and all of a sudden they have the Lord, and they have this new life in Christ, and they're excited about what is happening in their life and learning the Bible. But they get past a certain stage, and it kind of gets boring. It's the same thing, week after week, Sunday morning twice, Wednesday night twice, listening to tapes, and their curiosity becomes satisfied. When you're first saved, there's a certain amount of curiosity about the Bible. But after you get past a certain level of growth and you're breaking through that maturity barrier through spiritual adolescence and into spiritual maturity, your basic questions that perhaps drove you and motivated you when you were first saved are are now all answered. Now the issue is simply living for eternity making decisions today in preparation for eternity. And that is one of the most significant elements of of maturation in life is to be able to postpone gratification and do things today even though you may not see the benefits of it for another 30 or 40 years or maybe into eternity. And this is where most Christians fail. As they get past, they, they start growing beyond spiritual childhood, they start breaking into spiritual adolescence, and they can no longer be motivated by something that is in the indefinite future. And so they begin to fall out and they become distracted by the events and stimulations of here and now. So the judgment seat of Christ is designed as a, as a motivation for us to realize that there is something real and tangible that will take place in the indefinite future and that every decision we make today impacts what happens at that event and that will determine who we are and what we do for eternity, not where we are. That's already satisfied by our decision to trust in Christ alone for salvation but who we will be in terms of our roles and responsibilities in heaven. 
So this morning I want to run through seven general characteristics of the judgment seat of Christ. First verse I want to look at is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. This is a key verse on the judgment seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. See, this is not salvation. This is talking about the judgment seat of Christ. We're already saved. This has to do with rewards for what we do in the body during this life, what we have done, whether good or bad. It is at this time at the judgment seat of Christ that we are going to be evaluated on the basis of our performance in the spiritual life during our time on earth. At the instant of salvation, we are given everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. You don't need anything else. You have the Holy Spirit and you have the Word of God. And in the combination of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, every believer has the opportunity to advance to spiritual maturity. The one thing that makes the difference is volition. Your decision, you determine whether or not you hit spiritual maturity. It has nothing to do with events in your life. It doesn't have anything to do with people in your life. It doesn't have anything to do with your work circumstances. It doesn't have anything to do with your romance circumstances. It doesn't have anything to do whether you're single, married, or divorced. It has to do with how you decide to apply the Word of God on a day-to-day basis in your life. So the believer that lives his life on the basis of uh, divine viewpoint in the soul, applying the doctrine that he has learned, produces good. This is the Greek word agathos. And agathos has to do with good of uh, intrinsic value. A-G-A-T-H-O-S. And this is what we call divine good to distinguish it from human good, which is simple morality. It may involve uh, charity. It may involve altruism. Uh, it may involve many different things. Now, when I categorize these out here, I don't mean to disparage involvement in many different kinds of, of um functions that benefit society in some sort of, uh, of good way. The only difference between divine good and human good is that in divine good, you're operating under the filling of the Holy Spirit, and in human good, you're operating according to the flesh in your area of strength, and you're producing human good. It may be the same activities. For some reason, people got the idea that human good is getting involved in some of the uh, social activities that improve society. There's nothing wrong with that. The issue is filling of the spirit versus a sin nature, not the activity itself. There's nothing wrong with getting involved in different events that benefit the community, that benefit society as a whole, but it's not in and of itself uh, spiritual. It's not in and of itself good of an intrinsic value. So we will be evaluated according to what we have done, whether good or uh, worthless, and there the word is phallos. Phallos, P-H-A-U-L-O-S, has to do with with sin. Has to do with that which is sin or human good, that which has no human value. So we're either producing good, which is divine good, or we're producing human good. Or sin. The person who produces divine good has something that will be rewardable. When you live a life under the control of the sin nature and you're producing sin and human good, then if that's all you do, then that results in a loss of rewards. This passage indicates that the believer, though, is accountable for his decisions, and this is covered by the word proso. P-R-A-S-S-O. And it is 
more the concept of practice what you do on a regular basis. Each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body. It's not simply what he has done, that would be the Greek word poieo, but what he has practiced. Now this word is important because over in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and through 21, you have a list of the works of the sin nature. At the end of the list of the works of the sin nature, we're told that the one who practices, proso, the one who practices these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And as we have studied many times, that phrase, inheriting the kingdom of God, is not a term for having eternal life. There's a difference between inheriting the kingdom and having eternal life. I dropped that little jewel in the middle of the, uh, the pastors at the WHW this last week. I always do that with the uh, first-year guys. I make it a habit when I, or that's my technique, is when I'm teaching principles of grammar, I always pick verses related to salvation for those first-year guys. I just want to make sure they get the gospel straight. And it, a lot of them discover they've never had the gospel straight. And so we start with John 3:16 through 18, and then we'll move to a couple of other passages, passages in John, like John 20, 30, and 31. And I have a technique I use where after we've gone through these verses and we emphasize believe, 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 and we look at the tenses and the tense voice and mood and all these passages, I say, now, how many of you, this is one of the few times I ever have people raise their hand, because I'm using a real technique here to sucker them. I want to say, how many of you believe that if, that, that if you have somebody who's not saved, has no idea how to get to heaven, that what book of the Bible would you give them to read so that they would be saved? And there's always a little confusion. I say, would you give them the Gospel of John? Yeah, yeah. You think that if they read, an unbeliever read the Gospel of John, that they would be saved. Yes, and they all raise their hands, every one of them, so I've got them committed. And then I say, well, now I'm not going to have you raise your hand on this one because I don't want to embarrass you afterwards, but how many of you talk about repentance as something people need to do in order to get saved? And you see a few guys, they're, they're nodding, and, they, they're, and you've, just, you've just killed them right there. And then I say, well, would it surprise you to know that John never uses the word repent? So if you have to repent to be saved, you can't get saved in the Gospel of John. You can hear a pin drop. I just love it. But it challenges these, these, these men, and it really has an impact, and they many times come back over the years and realize, they'll come back and they'll say, you know, first time I heard you, I didn't like what you said. I had never heard that before. I went home, I checked everything, and I realized I did not understand the gospel, and I had never understood the gospel. And that's why I go year after year is because it's such, such a wonderful opportunity to help people clarify the message that they're preaching. But this time, and then I always tie it, somebody will always say, but, 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 but what about 1 Corinthians 6 or, or, or Galatians 5, where if you commit murder or adultery or immorality, you're not going to inherit the kingdom. And then I say, well, inheriting the kingdom isn't entering the kingdom. It's inheriting the kingdom, and there's a difference. Once again, you can hear a pin drop. So I usually get a chance to explain that a little bit. And that's the issue, is the person who prosos the person who practices these things, they, they, that which means they're spending the majority of their time out of fellowship, under the control of the sin nature, will not inherit the kingdom. They are forfeiting their rewards and inheritance privileges at the judgment seat of Christ. So the purpose, in terms of looking at the general characteristics of the judgment seat of Christ, the first characteristic is its purpose. Its purpose is to uh, evaluate believers' performance in life. Second point. The second characteristic is that the emphasis at the judgment seat of Christ is the development of Christian virtue. The issue is the development of Christian virtue or the character of Jesus Christ. And we see this in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 13. Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 13. 
Paul begins by asking a rhetorical question, but why do you judge your brother? See, the problem here is a failure to deal with arrogance in the life of the believer. Arrogance is the most destructive of all sins, and arrogance is the most subtle of all sins. And arrogance is the root of most sins of the tongue, and it is the root of judging your brother. You think you're better than they are. You think somehow your sins are not as bad as their sins. This is the biggest problem that you have with people who teach a work salvation, is they don't realize that their sins are are just as bad as somebody else's sins. They always want to identify adultery and homosexuality and pederasty and whatever it might be as these are awful sins. And if you, oh, drinking, of course you've got to include drinking, dancing, and smoking in there. And if you do these things, you're not going to be saved. You can't be saved. A real believer won't do that. But such a judgmental attitude is arrogance, and it's just as bad as any sin. And, of course, some of those things I mentioned aren't actually sins. But in verse 10, Paul says, Why do you judge your brother, or why do you show contempt for your brother? See, when you are judging someone, putting yourself in a position of uh, condemning them, negatively critiquing them. Now, there's a difference between judging and exercising discernment or making evaluative judgment decision about someone. There are many times we have to evaluate somebody legitimately. If you're an employer and somebody comes to you for a job, you have to evaluate their character. That's legitimate. If you are on a pastor search committee at a church, you have to evaluate the character of pastoral candidates. That's legitimate. If you are a pastor and you're looking for people to teach Sunday school or serve on a deacon board or something of that nature, you have to evaluate the character of people. Evaluation of the character is not the same as negative judgment where you're running somebody down, condemning them for their behavior or, or what they are, are doing, their practices or whatever. So this is that negative concept of negatively critiquing or condemning somebody, and it shows an attitude of uh, that you don't respect some other people, you don't understand the distinction that all of us have, have a sin nature, just we have different sin patterns and different areas of weakness. So the person who judges another believer is not operating on impersonal love for all mankind. He is completely out of fellowship and he is operating on the sin nature, so there's fragmentation of the soul. So Paul says, why do you judge your fellow believer? Also, why do you regard your fellow believer with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. There is going to be subordination, submission, and worship of God at the judgment seat of Christ, And at that time, everyone, verse 12, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. Everything will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. And for those who have failed to advance in the spiritual life, there will be shame and embarrassment as we shall see. So Paul says that we should not get that we will give account at the judgment seat of Christ. The issue isn't salvation; the issue is our role and responsibilities in the kingdom. Verse 13. Therefore, in light of the fact that we will be evaluated, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this: not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. See, the context of Romans 14 is the same issue that we've been studying in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10 in our early morning service, and that is the issue of putting a stumbling block, doing something that causes a weaker brother uh, to justify sinful behavior in his own life that causes problems in his spiritual life. Now, we have studied that in detail in the morning morning service, so we're not going to go off onto that now. But the issue that is brought out in first in Romans fourteen ten through thirteen is that the issue is character. Every believer is a royal priest, and we represent just ourselves before God. We are to live our own life as unto the Lord, and what other people do is not any of our business spiritually. When we reach spiritual uh, 
begin to reach spiritual adulthood and we develop a personal sense of our eternal destiny and then we develop our personal love for God, we begin to, and have impersonal love for others, we begin to quit prying into their lives and interfering with their decisions and trying to make judgments about their life. We stop being controlling of others. This is particularly difficult uh, when you're a parent and your children are going through that transition from late adolescence to early adulthood, and you have to learn to quit prying, and you have to learn to quit uh, uh, messing with their lives. They are now an adult, and you have to learn to treat them as an adult, and that, if you haven't hit that yet, that will be a challenge. There's nothing more difficult to deal with than parents who don't cut the apron strings and think that they still have the same rights to interfere in their children's lives when their children are 30 that they had when they were 13. And once your child leaves home, once you're not paying the bills, you don't have any right to interfere in anything. Your parental responsibilities are over with. And it's amazing how many parents never understand that, and all they become is a major pain in the life of their children for the rest of their life. So uh, if you are a parent of young children, you better start preparing yourself right now. Your job is to make them independent of you so that they can live without you. And after they reach that stage of financial independence, then, well, whatever decisions they make, whether you like it or not, you just have to quit judging them and worry about your own spiritual life because everything from that point on is between them and the Lord, and it's not any of your concern. This is the same principle that Jesus emphasized in Matthew 7, 1 through 5. The command was, do not judge lest you be judged, emphasizing the fact that when we judge someone, a sin of the tongue, when we are critical of them in a, in a negative way, in a harsh way, in a way we're not, uh, not authorized to be, then we will also be judged for that sin. Not only are we going to be disciplined for the sin of of judging, we're going to be disciplined for whatever the sin is that we're judging them for. So we're going to come under compound discipline. Verse 2, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So that's where we get compound discipline. We will uh, bring our own discipline, our own judgment on ourselves. The issue is then explained in verses 3 and 4. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? See, the problem is we're in arrogance. We're blind to our own faults, and we have major faults, and we don't, we're, we're blowing something up in somebody else's life when we're not even paying attention to our own spiritual life. Each believer is a royal priest and is responsible for his own decisions, and we will give account for that at the judgment seat of Christ. So we each have enough to worry about in our own lives without running down or judging other believers. The third characteristic of the judgment seat of Christ is that we are evaluated for bringing God's plan for the spiritual life to completion in our own life. That's the issue to take God's plan for the spiritual life and to bring it to maturity or completion in our own life. God's plan for you is to conform you to the image, that is the character, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's plan for your life. God is going to bring circumstances into your life. He is going to bring tests, adversity, people, uh, events into your life because he knows exactly how you are made up on the inside and just exactly what you need. And he is going to bring those things into your life again and again and again until you finally learn to apply doctrine there. And that is the purpose of that pressure. And as you learn to apply doctrine, then your character will be transformed. God the Holy Spirit will begin to produce in you the fruit of the Spirit and you will begin to have a real measure of stability and joy and happiness in your life. Until then, there's misery, and it's amazing how many people fight it. Often what happens is on the outside, we have a great facade of spirituality. We use all the right God words, and we go to church, and we're, we uh, keep our notebooks filled with doctrine, and we underline passages in Scripture, and everything looks good. But nobody knows what's really going on in your soul when you handle adversity. 
Does the Lord really matter in your life? Do you really make decisions on a day-to-day basis? And what happens is some people just keep making the same bad decisions over and over again, and so they keep going through the same tests over and over and over again. And that's happened to all of us, so don't just be thinking about somebody else. We all go through that. Somehow it occurs to me that whenever I travel, that must be what the Lord's teaching me, because I always have technical problems with the computer. Yeah, Jim's laughing. He knows what I go through. I mean, I'll get on an airplane and fly somewhere to give a presentation. I'm working on the computer all the way there. Turn it off, put it in my briefcase, go to the hotel, open it up, and it won't come on. Things like that. And when I went to to Kiev this last year in January, we just put a new hard drive in that computer. We had a little problem with it, so so it was, Bryce was wise enough and brilliant enough to say, well, you better take the old hard drive with you. Well, I got over there in two days over there. When I travel, everything is dependent upon using the projector, using the computer. Two days, two days I was there, and the computer wouldn't recognize the new hard drive. Ah, so I popped out the old hard drive, the new hard drive, and put in the old hard drive, and just kept right on going after I had to get back in fellowship a few times. So I had a couple of glitches on this last trip, and either I didn't care or I was too tired of the Lord's finally teaching me something, but um, I just managed to just not even worry about it and just relaxed and moved on. So we just go through those tests over and over and over again until the Lord finally hits us between the eyes with that two-by-four enough times to where we realize we just have to really apply the Word or we're just going to keep going through those same tests again and again and again. So the third characteristic of the uh, of the judgment seat of Christ is that we're evaluated on how well we bring God's plan for the spiritual life to completion. We are to live inside that soul fortress. The soul fortress is made up of those ten stress busters, the ten problem-solving devices, and we have to learn to live in that soul fortress, to spend maximum time there. That means that with every adversity, we don't first try the human solution and then the divine solution, but we just try to always, first thing, uh, try the divine solution, claim a promise, stay in fellowship, and keep on abiding inside that soul fortress. This is the principle of 1 John 2.28 where John said, and now little children, abide in him. Keep on staying there. That's the emphasis of minnow. Keep staying there. Don't go out and then come back in, but stay there. Abide in him so that when he appears at the judgment seat of Christ, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So we have to stay in fellowship. This is the same idea that James mentions in James 1.25. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, that is, one who is consistently applying the word, this man shall be blessed in what he does. We'll receive those contingent blessings for time because we are continuing to apply the word. James 2.12 and 2.13. James says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. We will be evaluated by how well we are applying the law of love, the law of liberty in our own lives. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So that if we fail in the spiritual life, fail to apply these principles, then there will be no mercy at the judgment seat of Christ. This leads to the fourth point. The fourth characteristic is that those who are successful will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. In Revelation 22:12, Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. We can expect it at any time. Today, tomorrow, might not be for a hundred years, but it's imminent. I am coming soon, and my reward is with me. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So we will be rewarded for success at the judgment seat of Christ. This means, point number five, that at the judgment seat of Christ, we can have confidence today. We don't have to worry about, oh, boy, some people are probably scared to death about the fact that they're going to have to face an evaluation of the judgment seat of Christ. But 
1 John 4.17 says that if love has been brought to completion among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. We know that if we reach spiritual maturity and we see the evidence in our own life of personal love for God because we obey his word, we keep his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my word. It's not some sort of uh, subjective uh, feeling. It's not being quiet in the presence of God, feeling the presence of God. It's knowing his word. If you uh, love me, you keep my commandments. And love is when love is brought to completion in us, then we can have boldness in the day of judgment, 1 John 4.17. Well, point number four focused on the fact that those who are successful will be rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ. Point number five, or characteristic number five, that, that those who are successful can have confidence today about the judgment seat of Christ. But in contrast to this, point number six, those who are failures will be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. There will be shame and misery for a time at the judgment seat of Christ. Shame is a painful feeling that is the result of being conscious or being fully aware that we have done something dishonorable or wrong or sinful. There will be a time of regret because we will see all of that lost opportunity. We will see how we spent all of that time being concerned about things that had no real te- real value. They were te- temporarily very enjoyable or stimulating, but they had no long-term consequences. And we will be filled, or the failure believer will be filled with shame and sorrow. But at the in the eternal state, every tear will be wiped away. There will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain. All these things are passed away. But in the meantime, there are many believers today who are failures because they do not make doctrine the number one priority in their life. These are believers who have have uh, succumbed to some type of false doctrine. For example, in Galatians 5.4, they've become involved in legalism. So they are said to have drifted off course from grace. Hebrews 12.15 describes them as those who have come short of the grace of God. They're not unbelievers. They're no longer operating on grace in their life, and therefore they have become legalistic, and they are forfeiting rewards and their inheritance. In Revelation 3.15-16, they're described as the lukewarm believer. This is the believer that is neither hot nor cold. This is uh, by hot or cold. Normally you are told, and the normal interpretation of that passage, that one I've always heard and the one I taught for many years, is that hot means you're uh, against, you're, you're for God, you're passionate, you're positive volition. Cold means you're just cold toward God. That's not the emphasis at all. Uh, the emphasis is that cold water is useful. We all like to use cold water. We, when, we're, when we're hot, we like a good drink of cold water. Cold water is useful for some things. Hot water is useful for many things. But lukewarm water is not useful for anything. See, the contrast there isn't between the, the believer who is uh, rebellious versus the one who's lukewarm versus the one who is positive. It's between the believers who are positive, hot or cold, both are useful, Versus the believer who's lukewarm, non-usable. That's the emphasis on the passage, especially if you do your homework on the history of that particular area and the hot or cold springs that were being uh, piped into Laodicea. It has to do, cold and hot have to do with usefulness. Uh, cold is not negative. Otherwise, you have negative believer. A lukewarm believer is also a negative believer. You have two negatives and a positive. just doesn't make sense in the passage. So a lukewarm believer loses rewards. The shipwrecked believer in 1 Timothy 1.19, his spiritual life is a, is a wreck. James 1.8 describes the double-minded believer. This is the believer who, who one second it's one way, the next second it's another way because he's not positive, not committed to the Lord, to doctrine. His life is, is he's, he's completely unstable and can become psychotic. And then in Philippians 3:18 to 19, this believer is called the enemy of the cross. And then the seventh point, the loser believer, the believer who is a failure in the spiritual life, 
will lose rewards, but he will not lose salvation. He will experience shame and misery at the judgment seat of Christ. That will be temporary. It will be wiped away after a while. But he doesn't lose his salvation. 1 Corinthians 3.13 through 15 tells us that uh, each man's uh, work will become manifest. The day will show it because it is to be revealed by fire. Regarding the failure believer, if anyone's production is burned up, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved yet as through fire. So the failure believer doesn't lose his eternal life. He loses rewards. He loses everything that God would have blessed him with for eternity. He has sacrificed that just as Esau did by selling his birthright, which is a position in the kingdom, for a mess of pottage. He's been more concerned with satisfying temporal appetites and temporal desires than living his life in light of eternity. So John warns us not to become distracted by false doctrine not to put at risk, not to put in jeopardy all that we have worked for in the spiritual life by becoming distracted by some kind of false doctrine, false system, some sort of intellectual stimulation or physical or emotional stimulation. And unfortunately, this is what happens to too many believers as they try, as they get to that point in adolescence and uh, trying to crack the maturity barrier. You have to stick with it. That's why you have the emphasis in Scripture on endurance. That means staying with it no matter how tough it gets. The word for endurance is hupomenes, which means to abide under, to stay and remain under the pressure, not to try to escape it through some sort of human viewpoint technique to get rid of the situation, but to stay in that pressure situation by applying doctrine. And when we do, this is the point of James 1, verse 2, we can count it all joy have the happiness of Christ, and have stability and peace no matter what the circumstances may involve. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to recognize all that you have provided for us in grace, and that the issue for us is what we do with it. It's our volition. It's our decision. It's our responsibility. And yet, though salvation is a free gift... Our spiritual advance, our eventual rewards in heaven are the result of what we do with what you have given us. Father, we pray that you would challenge us to press on to the high calling of Jesus Christ, to spiritual maturity, that we may glorify you in both time and eternity. But, Father, there may be someone here who is not sure where they will be in eternity. They may be uncertain of their eternal destiny, unsure of their salvation. If that's you right now, right where you sit, you can make your eternal destiny sure and certain. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of your sins. The issue is not what you do or what you haven't done or what you have done. The issue is what Jesus Christ did on the cross where he paid the penalty for all of your sins. So that right now all that you have to do is to simply put your faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.